Okay. Well, we want to welcome everybody here this morning as we continue our study on the Bible, racism, and social justice. But let's uh, open again with a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful that you bring us together on this Lord's Day to reflect upon the truths you've recorded for us in your word. Uh, it's through your word that we know Christ. It's through your word that we know how to live in Christ. And so we pray that you will uh, be with us as we devote ourselves to this study this morning. And we ask these things in the name of our glorious Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, over the last four weeks, of course, we have been following the storyline of Scripture to show us what God's Word says about justice. What we've seen is that since God is just, so mankind as His image bearers must be just, owing justice to all other image bearers in this world. But our sin brought broken relationships into this world, which is why we live selfish lives, putting ourselves before God and others. Our sinfulness then results in injustice when we are unfair and show favoritism in our treatment of others. And when those in positions of power within a society produce policies which unfairly favor the treatment of some over others, then this results in oppression. So here's the dilemma. As slaves of sin, we cannot become the righteous and just men and women that God created us to be. Not even God's Old Testament people Israel were righteous and just, as God had called them to be through His covenants. So through Israel's history, we learn that God Himself must be the one who will bring righteousness and justice to this world. And God Himself is the only one who will end oppression. So in the coming of Christ, God Himself became man in the miracle of the Incarnation to take our place and succeed where we failed. And through his life of righteousness and his death for sinners, Christ fulfills God's prophetic promise to liberate the oppressed and to bring justice in this world. So as we saw last time, it is on the cross where God's love and justice meet. His justice requires punishment for sin, and his love offers his son to be punished as our substitute for sin. So when Jesus was lifted up from the earth on the cross... He draws all peoples to himself, which is why in Christ a new humanity is created from all nations in the church who live together under the reign of King Jesus as citizens of his heavenly kingdom. So Christ unites people from all nations or ethnic groups as equals since we all alike have been saved by the coming of, of Christ in the cross through our faith in his death for us. And this is why then we live with the social ethic of love, which leaves no place for injustice or oppression in Christ's church. See, we're called out from our cultures to live as a counterculture of love. And we invite others then to join with us because of the great love that Christ has shown for his people. But here's the question, what does this look like in our lives? How are we to practice this social ethic in Christ's church? We're going to spend some time focusing on a vital verse for us to remember as we seek to live the lives of love, which are pleasing to God and have been 
since we have been saved by God's love through Jesus Christ. This vital verse, then, is Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So please turn with me there as we consider this verse. Here in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, he writes to them uh, of Christians who are living with liberty and which have graciously received Christ's grace. But what does he say to them? Again, let's read this verse together. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there are three central truths for us to remember from this verse. Because I think it would actually be helpful for us to memorize them. That's why I have chosen to summarize them in three phrases to help us keep these truths in mind. Right? So, first, recognize God's providence. We see that at the beginning of verse 10. As we have opportunity. Second, remedy others' problems. Let us do good to all. And third, remember the church's priority especially to those who are of the household of faith. So recognize God's providence, remedy others' problems, and remember the church's priority. Let's consider each one of these then as we look at them more closely this morning. First, recognize God's providence. God is sovereignly in control of our lives. He's in control of the time in which we live, the places in which we are, the relationships that we have, the situation and circumstances that we face, and the gifts and skills that we receive to love God and our neighbor. We are created in God's image to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever, and we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So our good works are a fruit of the Holy Spirit, that we produce from Christ's love that has entered our souls and changed our hearts. So we follow God's law as our guide to love. And these good works please God and help our fellow man. But when do we carry out our good works? It's whenever God gives us the opportunity to do so. So God has embedded us in our communities and in our society to do good works. And he has given us our family, our friends, our neighbors, and all our relationships to do good works. He has given us spiritual gifts and equipped us with skills to do good works. So he has placed us in this age, at this location, under this situation, to do good works. And this work, listen, it can wear us out. Look back to the previous verse. Galatians 6 verse 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. See, we should not grow weary or lose heart, but continue to do the good works which God has prepared for us beforehand to carry out. And this lifestyle requires diligence as we depend upon the Holy Spirit for our strength and look to Christ as our hope. And this is what I don't want us to miss. That while God gives us opportunities to help others that we must not neglect, listen, we are not responsible to meet every need or to address every injustice in the world. 
You know, we live in a day where we are connected globally through the internet and our smartphones, and so we hear the ravages of sin throughout our nation and around the world. And this can quickly become overwhelming. What am I supposed to do about the poor and malnourished children in Africa? What am I supposed to do about the genocide of minority peoples in Asia? What am I supposed to do about the international sex trafficking which is taking place more and more in our own country? And not only are we made more aware today of the many needs around the world, but we are more and more often called to get involved. So we are asked to give money to various organizations. We're asked to volunteer in providing assistance. We're asked to advocate for the vulnerable and needy. We're asked to become socially aware and politically active. And all too often, what's the result? That we carry a burden that we were never meant to carry. And we live under a false sense of guilt for not being able to do more than we are. Listen, God does not expect you to fix the world's problems. He doesn't expect you to burn yourself out getting involved in every challenging hardship which exists. He doesn't expect you to handle the innumerable things that are out of your control and beyond your skills and knowledge. So let's breathe a sigh of relief. God recognizes that there are limitations to what we can do. After all, he's created them for us. Frankly, trying to help everyone is a miserable way to live. And it will ultimately prove frustrating because we simply do not have the ability to correct what is wrong with the world. Brothers and sisters, we need to recover the principle of moral proximity. The principle of moral proximity. Because this biblical principle teaches us that our responsibilities are strongest for those problems that are closest to us. So, think of it this way. I am responsible for my marriage and for my family in a way I'm not responsible for your marriage and your family, right? My responsibility to care for my own children is greater than my responsibility to care for other people's children. And we see this principle taught in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. Let's listen. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So what's my central responsibility according to this verse? My own household. Then what's next? My extended family. Now I have responsibilities for both, but they're not the same level. And we see this extending into the life of the church. This verse in its context uh, is, is in the context of the church's care for widows. So don't miss how this chapter then concludes. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 16, we read, If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. So the burden first lays within a household, then to a larger family, and when neither of these relationships are able to help these widows, it becomes the church's responsibility. Do you see then this principle of moral proximity working out? Listen to the Westminster Larger Catechism on Keeping God's Law. 
question 99. What rules are to be observed for the right understanding of the Ten Commandments? That's the question. Answer. For the right understanding of the Ten Commandments, these rules are to be observed. And of course, you have these rules that are given. But today we're focusing on the fifth one. That what God forbids is at no time to be done. What he commands is always our duty, but notice, and yet every particular duty is not to be done at all times. So our particular duty before God and others depends on our moral proximity. And the farther you are in terms of relationship, distance, and time, the less personally responsible you are. You can think of it as a series of concentric circles. So you can see them there on the screen. The, the, the one that we're most responsible for is in the middle, home. And then you maybe go out a level to the workplace. And you go out further to the wider community and then further out to our society and then ultimately further out to the world. Each area of life has a different level of responsibility. Isn't it freeing then for us to recognize our different levels of responsibility? And while we cannot allow this principle to pull us away from our God-given opportunities to help and care for others, it also keeps us from failing to carry out the opportunities that God does give us in our various areas of life. Because if we are seeking to help all that we can, we'll ultimately not be able to help those who we are required to help with the limited time and, and skills and abilities and circumstances that we have. So again, we must first recognize God's providence. But returning to these three central truths from Galatians 6.10, we secondly remedy others' problems. See, nothing that I have said before removes our responsibility to, as the verse says here, let us do good to all. And while this all does not include everyone, it does include all kinds of people. In other words, we must not show partiality or favoritism as we have previously seen. And we have a natural tendency to gravitate towards those who are like us, who are the same age or experience similar life situations, who share our interests and our likes, who have the same social standing, who look like us, think like us, dress like us, vote like us. But God created all of mankind in his image, and Christ died for all kinds of people. So as God gives us the opportunity, we are called to do good to all. This is what makes Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan so scandalous and powerful. Now, we all know the story in Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. You don't need to turn there. Here, robbers attack a Jewish man, and they leave him stripped naked beaten and left for dead at the side of the road. He's there, a Jewish priest, and then a Levite walk down the road, and they have a God-given opportunity and responsibility to help this poor man. But what do they do? 
they pass him by and continue walking down the road. And it's not until a Samaritan who the Jews despised came to this poor man that he received the help that he needed. So in telling the Jews this parable, Jesus was exposing their sinfulness and he was revealing himself as the ultimate good Samaritan. And as Christians, we are then called to follow in his footsteps, doing good to all, whoever they may be, as God gives us the opportunity. This includes those belonging to other ethnic groups when they are hurting, when they need help, when they are experiencing injustice and oppression, which gives us no place for any ethnic partiality or prejudice among us and how we're to treat others. So, again, we began with the first truth here to remember to recognize God's providence and then secondly to remedy others' problems. But this brings us to our third truth to remember. Remember the church's priority. Remember the church's priority. How does Galatians 6, 9 end? Especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we must focus our good works on those who are of the household of faith. Again, consider the principle of moral proximity. God's word teaches us that our church family is prioritized before our larger community and social responsibilities. You see, while we are to love our neighbors universally, the love that Christ commands his church to have for one another is more central in our lives. And this is why there are so many one another's in the New Testament. So whenever you see a one another in Scripture, it is showing how we are called to love one another practically as a covenant community in the church. And frankly, this focus is all too often lost in discussing social justice today. The church's proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ contrasts with the hopelessness of a world opposed to God and sin. And the unity and equality of ethnic groups gathered together into one body in Christ's church then contrasts with the injustice and the oppression in our sinful and corrupt world. It's our love for one another then that contrasts with our society's selfishness, which is why pursuing justice without preaching Christ is foolishness. See, the church's mission, listen, the church's mission is not a transformed society. It's making disciples of Jesus Christ. So as Jesus' ministry didn't seek social change but soul conversion, so his church's ministry keeps the same focus. Now, Zach Keel summarizes this well in his article, A Biblical Theology of Justice. It's in a recent issue of the Modern Reformation with the title, Redeeming Justice. I'm going to read at length from this article. It's very helpful. This is what Keel writes. You can follow along on the screen. In terms of societal justice, listen, in terms of societal justice, Jesus did little to nothing. He healed a few servants, but he did not grant a single one freedom. He did not free anyone from prison. In fact, he left John the Baptist there to die. Jesus did not help anyone get hired for a job or move them up the social ladder. Instead, he called for people to sell their possessions. He continues, Jesus and John certainly exhorted people to be righteous, 
and to cease exploitation. But consider this contrast. About 20 years before Jesus' ministry, a revolutionary named Judas proclaimed that Roman taxation was no better than slavery and called on people not to pay. Jesus, however, simply asserted, render to Caesar. For the zealots, being a tax collector was an illegitimate vocation, but not for Jesus. Many of our modern ideas of justice on the left or the right look a good deal like gentrification. This, Jesus was not. Moreover, the apostles' application of Jesus' ministry to the church does not help us much. So now he's moving to the church. Both Paul and Peter called for obedience and for taxes to go to Rome, which then facilitated state-funded idolatry. Paul did not demand that Christian slave owners free their slaves. And the positions of church officers were reserved for men alone. Without a doubt, the apostles robustly believed that the gospel changes lives and makes us fruitful in righteousness and justice. But there is little evidence that Paul expected our obedience to revolutionize the Roman status quo. Sorry, got behind in my slides. Let's continue. So what justice did Jesus clearly perform? It was on the cross. Christ's atonement satisfied justice and paid the penalty for the supreme injustice, our rebellion against God. Paul could not say it more clearly. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Finally, he says, Christ fulfilled justice so that we, the ungodly, might be justified through faith and so become heirs of mercy. Because Christ satisfied wrath, we are not treated according to the law as we deserve, but we graciously receive the salvation that we do not deserve. The gospel is about the Father treating us not by the law, but by mercy. See, this is the gospel message which Christ's church then proclaims to the world where we invite the peoples of the world to receive Christ as Savior and become citizens of his heavenly kingdom. And as Christ's kingdom grows, so does his church's influence in this world. Jesus himself speaks of how we will be salt and light in his Sermon on the Mount. But this influence comes through Christ's gospel changing hearts and lives. Now to gain further insight, let's consider some frequently misunderstood and misapplied words from Christ. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Here, Jesus is speaking of his return at the end of this age and the final judgment to come. And he speaks of his judgment based on our treatment of others. So it's quite relevant. But let's read these verses together. So again, Matthew 25. Verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, the key to unlocking the meaning of this biblical passage is verse 40. Because in verse 40, the king says, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So who are those who are hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked, sick, and in prison? It was their brothers and sisters in Christ. These are those, in other words, who are fellow believers in Christ's church. After all, Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And who does Christ represent here? The church, which is the body of Christ. So how you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ reveals your love for God himself. That's what we see here in these verses. So this is not a general call for the church to care for the world's poor and hurting. No, it's controversial. But this is a specific call for Christ's church to love and care for one another as we struggle and suffer in this world. Now, let me be clear. This does not mean that Christians don't care for the poor hurting in the world. That's not what I'm saying. As we've already seen, we are to do good to all as God gives us the opportunity to help. But it does mean that our church family is prioritized over the broader concerns of this world. In other words, in the principle of moral proximity, our church comes before our wider community or larger social obligations. Do you see that here in this passage? Well, why is this? It's because as Christians, our hope is not found in this world. Our hope is not found in what we can change in this world or in this world becoming a better place. But our hope is found in the world to come when Christ returns. And while we pursue justice and seek to stop oppression, Injustice and oppression will not come to an end as long as sin remains in the world. But there is a day coming when these tragic realities will come to an end, when Christ returns as our righteous judge. 
And we just read about this day of judgment, right, from Matthew 25. When Christ comes again in his glory and all the nations are gathered before him. And on this great day, then all sin and suffering will stop. Well, earlier we looked at Acts 17. When the Apostle Paul speaks to the Greek philosophers in Athens and explained how God's image bearers divided into the nations or ethnic groups of the world. But later in the same sermon, Paul warns these Greeks of the coming day of Christ's judgment. And what does he say to them? Again, Acts 17, verses 30 to 31. Paul says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. You see, a day has been appointed by God on which Christ will judge the world in righteousness. And we know that this day will come as surely as Christ is risen from the dead. And on this day... God's justice will finally be restored to the world. All sin will be punished according to God's righteous law. Which means that justice is coming for all. No matter how powerful, how privileged, how wealthy, or how successful they may have been in this world. So either God's justice will come against us in condemnation for our sin where we will be punished under the eternal torment of God's righteous wrath, or God's justice has been achieved in Christ's death for our sin, where he was punished on the cross under God's righteous wrath in our place. And we will then be welcomed into the eternal joy of God's permanent presence. So it's through our faith in Christ that our heart's desire for justice will one day be fulfilled but it will be fulfilled by Him, no matter how much injustice or oppression we may endure in this world. So our hope is not found in social change, in political reform, in our own efforts. They're not found in this world at all, but our hope is found in Christ alone and what He will do when He returns. See, this is the glorious future we have to look forward to in Christ. So let's turn to one more passage of Scripture. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 12, where the Apostle John writes of this future, which includes all the nations of the world. I love these verses. Where John records that after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angel stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. See, on this day, 
the divisions of the nations will come to an end. Because Christ's church will include all ethnic groups who are united together equally as one body in Christ. So what a wonderful future we have to look forward to in Christ. But it is a future we ultimately have to wait for in this age. Until then, Christ's church gives this world a preview of His coming kingdom. See, it's through the church that our future has broken into this present age. That's why we offer Christ to all through the gospel, so they too can enjoy this future in God's presence. J. Daniel Hayes has written an enriching and encouraging book that I strongly encourage you to read. It's called From Every People and Nation, A Biblical Theology of Race. And it's very helpful to read if you have the chance, but I'll let him apply this future reality to today. He says, This vision of God's people that John sees suggests that around the throne of God one will find Nigerians, Cubans, Turks, Chinese, Brazilians, Swedes, Afghans, Mexicans, and a host of other peoples from hundreds of different tribes speaking hundreds of different languages. The ethnic races of the world will be mixed together and brought together in worship of God. We in the church today need to ask ourselves the question as to why our earthly churches differ so much in composition from the congregations depicted in Revelation. Because on to say the ultimate people of God as portrayed in Revelation are multi-ethnic in fulfillment of God's original intention. We in the church today need to work toward that ideal as well. Again, we are to be a preview to the world of the future that Christ will bring. And so it's over our next few times together that we will continue to explore this question further. Why do our churches not reflect this multi-ethnic future? So let's continue to pray for the Lord's blessings as we seek to be this diverse community that Christ died for us to be in Him. I look forward to returning to this next week.